0: Again, this morning, we're going to honor God's word as we read one of our key texts. It's short, so I'm going to encourage you if you, if you if you would, would you read it aloud with me? We'll do this together on three. Ready? Three, two, one. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Father God, we want to walk according to your purposes and your plans. And so, Father, breakthrough, we want to hear from you this morning. God, speak clearly. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. All right, you can have a seat. So last night was pretty fun at the shop house. Uh, last uh, Saturday night is usually uh, bath and shower nights for, for the kids. And so I had asked Darian to go down and get ready, take a bath and clean up for, for the evening. And um, he went down and he came back up just a few minutes later and he said, dad, only hot water is coming out of the tub. And so um, I wasn't thinking much about of it, Uh, you know, at that point. I thought, you know, he just did something wrong. And, you know, so I, I, Kella was already downstairs. I said, you know, Kella, can you help him out? Kella went to go help him out. And (laughs) about a minute later, (laughs) Kella comes up. She says, Dad, it's only, only hot water's coming out and it won 't turn off <laughs> the water will not turn off, and it 's coming out just as fast as it can come and so that was my night last night and and we we live at a at a rental facility and it's a great uh, community that we live in. we love it. but last night we could not, for the life of us, get a hold of the maintenance crew and so there's an emergency number you know that you would call, and those numbers we were calling them, and immediately they said, uh, "No one is available click and it would <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And it was a a recording. It wasn't even a person. And then we'd call the main line. It was an answering machine. And I I was trying Facebook message. I started posting in the community boards, you know. And so people were responding on the community board. It was so awesome. They were, like, giving me other numbers to call. None of those numbers worked either. (laughs) They were giving me different automated messages, but no live people. And um, so I, you know, I quickly, I just turned off the main water line, which I I called dad to figure out where that. Was as I hadn't discovered where that was in our place yet, so we hunted that down. We found that, and so you know we weren't in danger of flooding the basement at least. Um, and about thirty minutes later, uh, I got a call from maintenance guy, and I had submitted through one of their non-emergency methods a report, and I put in big cap letters "emergency," <laughs> which he happened to see. He said, "It's very lucky, uh, lucky, you know, that I saw that." Um, I and he came over, and we. I say we, my job was to go back and forth, probably, I, I, I didn't count, but probably 70 or 80 times back and forth between the bathroom and the water to turn the water line back on. And then he'd say, okay, turn it back off. You know, and we, we'd go, I mean, we spent over two hours before that valve was fixed, but I, I'm thankful this morning. Thank you, Jesus. I got a shower this morning. <laughs> and, and we had it all done. I think I was in bed by 12.15. So, um, you know, that's, that was my night. Last night, um, and I'm, I'm just thankful. I, I was I was so I was looking at this guy. We just finished the Big Mouth series, if you've been around, and this guy, I tell you, he was he was preaching a message to me last night because it was so frustrating. The things that we we were just doing the same thing over and over and over again, like a hundred times, trying to get this piece to fit right. And and he was just so patient, and and so I mean, you know, he he would he would kind of get upset, and he's like, oh darn it. You know, you know, something like that. And there was maybe two times in those two hours where it was a little bit more than darn it. But he always kept his composure. And, and he was just, he had such a good attitude. And so uh, he, he was preaching a message to me last night. So today, though, That that was my night. I thought I'd share just a little bit of my story, what I did last night. Today, we're in part two of this series called One Another. And the, the subtitle is Choosing to Love Unconditionally in a Politically Divided World. Simple, right? Simple, easy discussion. This this is a series that is designed to make us a little bit uncomfortable and hopefully at the end make us all a little bit better. Uh, Because after all, the church should be the safest place in the world to talk about anything, right? And so the church should be the safest place in the world for us to talk about politics. Although in the church, Pastor Derek shared this last week, we rarely talk about it. But we thought this is important enough that we should jump into the fray. Now, If you're a Christian, here's the tension. This is where we left off last week, if you're with us. And if not, we'll catch you up. Are we able to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? And and if if you're not a believer, if you're watching online, you just happened upon this this morning, you get to sit on the outside and judge us to see whether or not we do this very well. And in fact, my hunch is this, if we had done better, if the church had done better, you may be more interested in the Christian faith. Uh, or, or you may have never abandoned the Christian faith. Are, are we willing, church? Are we willing to be Christ followers first and Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Independents and whatever else you might be second? Are we willing to follow Jesus? And this is a tough one. Are we willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus creates space between us and our political party and space between us and the political platform of our political party and space between us and our political candidate? Not, not, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we not be political. That's not what this is about. I'm not suggesting that you not wade into politics or talk about politics uh, or run for office. I think, I think we should all lean into what's happening in our cities and our nation. And for those of you who feel called into that fray, you should step right in and we will cheer you on. But what I am suggesting is that we take what Jesus said, which is what we talked about last week, very seriously, that we would not allow the political climate to divide the church any local church or the church at large, because Jesus, if you remember, here's the one thing that he prayed for, the high priestly prayer, which was for us. He was praying for us. It was his prayer request to Heavenly Father. It was the last thing he prayed right before he was crucified, and it was that his body, his people, his church, his movement, that the church would not be divided, but that we would be one that we would figure out a way in which we are to disagree politically because we probably will, but at the same time, love unconditionally and begin to pray for unity. So now politics, admittedly, is not in my arena. I, I could talk about religion easily enough and I, I do pretty good. I do my best to stay atop and stay current with you know, what's happening even in the political world, but it's not my bet. So what I've been doing is, you know, I knew this election year was coming up and we talked about 2016, that, that kind of what happened in, in that year uh, last week. And I've been watching and I've been listening to a lot of respected pastors and, and, you know, prophetic leaders teaching on this for about nine months now. And I started back in January. And I've been gathering my notes. <laughs> now, I've, what I've found is interesting. And, and, and it's this. In, in the first century, there was something that they had in common with what happens to us in the room today, in our culture as well. In the first century, and you'll see this in the Gospels if you read it. It's so fascinating. Everybody wanted Jesus to be on their side. Everybody, in fact, they would question him and they would try to pigeonhole him and get him into a corner where he would agree with whatever their viewpoint was. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus and they wanted him to choose their side. And that's true today. Both our parties, they would argue that Jesus is on our side. If if he were to come back to earth today, Republicans are absolutely convinced that Jesus would be a Republican because of their values. Democrats would say, you know, absolutely, you know, Jesus would be a Democrat because he is concerned for the needs of the people, right? And so everybody still, everybody still wants a piece of, of, of Jesus. And the interesting thing is this, if any pastor, we're given the assignment, Sean. Could you come up with a sermon that would demonstrate that, in fact, the Republican Party and the Republican platform is in sync with the teaching of Jesus? I could do that. And if somebody else were to come along and say, Sean, would you create a sermon that shows that the Democratic platform and their values are in sync with the teaching of Jesus? I could do that too. And I've heard sermons, and you probably have too, leaning both ways. And here's why. Here's why that can happen. Here's how that can happen. When you interpret the words of Jesus through the filter of politics. It's amazing what you can do. And I'm going to steal this line. I, I heard this from Andy Stanley back way back in January. This is what he said. He's so red. He's so blue. It's amazing how often he agrees with you. If you start off with the filter of politics, I mean, that should just not be our plumb line. It should not. The truth is both sides quote the Bible and both sides quote Jesus. And the really funny thing is both sides actually use many of the same verses. So the question is this. Can we put our Jesus following filter on our faith filter ahead of our political filter? And it's a very, very difficult thing to do as we're going to see today. But I'm going to try to show us a way forward. And so... Um, Tony Evans, he's a he's a well-known uh, pastor and speaker. Many of you are probably familiar with that name, uh, big name in, in, in radio. That's why I first heard him is on radio. And his church was right down the road from where I went to Bible college, so I visited there uh, a time or two when I was at school there. He came over and actually speak at our spoke at our chapel uh, sessions a few times at Christ for the Nations. And if you've ever heard Tony Evans, you know that he is a preacher at heart and when he gets revved up I mean he gets into pentecostal preacher mode it's like pull the hanky out and you know start shouting kind of mode and I love that kind of stuff I love it you know somebody gets up and runs a lap around the sanctuary that's that's what happens and and you know there'd be clapping and cheering and 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 that would just encourage him more anyway I heard a quote from him recently that I thought was worth sharing. Now, so imagine this in Tony Evans' preacher voice. Tony says, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. Somebody shout, <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus did not come to take sides, but he came to take over. You know, he just, but he just said it way better than I just did. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely, Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of God to earth. It's a whole new kingdom. And he came to introduce it, the kingdom values, the upside down kingdom where where those with the wealth and the power, they take that and leverage it, their, their wealth and the power and the resources for those that have less power and less resources where the king lays down his life for his subjects rather than the other way around, right? Rather than, you know, demanding his subjects lay down their lives for him. The kingdom of God is so broad and so inclusive that everybody is invited to participate in it. But that's what he came for, right? The kingdom of God. God, here's the thing, I think the kingdom of God will always, perhaps, I I think this is the case, this is just my opinion, the kingdom of God will always, in some detail, at some level, conflict with the kingdoms of men. It just will, and the kingdom of God will always, at some level, in some detail, conflict with your political party, the platform of your political party, and your political candidates. There's always going to be some tension there, and this is why it is absolutely foolish. It is so foolish for the church to ever be divided over a candidate or a political party, because at the end of the day, no political party is probably ever going to line up with the kingdom values of Jesus, Each party has a little bit of it, even though that's even a difficult thing for some of us to acknowledge. But again, it's foolish for us to be divided because we're supposed to be kingdom first people and political people second. But that's very, very difficult to do in our divided culture. So here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna share a template. A very simple template. I, I, I actually snagged this from North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. They share their resources. I saw this and I thought this was so good. I, don't want it to, I want to use it to help us to understand where agreement ends and diverse opinions begin because we're supposed to be one. That's Jesus' prayer. That's his prayer for us. And we shouldn't allow any political party or candidate to divide us. So this template is designed to just help us to understand where does agreement end and diverse opinions, especially diverse political opinions, begin. So let's start with the Apostle Paul, who we talk about all the time. The Apostle Paul steps out of the pages of history as someone who hates Christians. He was a Pharisee, Um, he was brilliant, he was super educated, he becomes a Jesus follower, and he also had the distinction of being a Roman citizen. So he had all of this background, all of this stuff going on, and the Apostle Paul in his letters are going to give us a phrase that I think begins to give us a great starting point for putting together this template. And he uses a phrase that perhaps we've... Not taken much notice of, because he only uses it twice in his letters, twice in the letters that you know survived antiquity, and the phrase is this: He refers to the law of Christ, the law of. Of Christ. Now, the law of Christ, we're going to discover, is Paul's shorthand way of just talking about Jesus' new covenant command that, you know, we, we also talk about a lot around here. When Jesus gathered his disciples for the final Passover meal, he said, Guys, I'm giving you a new command. Uh, this command is, is going to be a substitute for all the other commands. You guys have had, you know, the 613 Old Testament laws, you've had the Torah, but I'm giving you a new command because we're establishing a new covenant. right here, right now. As you probably know, this new command was simple. This is what we were talking about last week is you are to love one another. With a caveat, as I have loved you. That's it. This isn't just a love fest, you know, you're to love one another. This isn't one way, this is two way. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, by this unique brand of love, by this unique brand of new covenant love, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, it's a two-way thing. It's a community thing. It's a family thing. It's an all-in, everybody-in thing, loving one another. But it's not just loving one another. You are to take your cues from me. I showed you how to do this. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, the Apostle Paul takes that idea and he pushes it through all of his letters as kind of the the uniting ethic, the big idea for all Jesus' followers. And the phrase, the law of Christ, is the phrase that he uses to take his readers back to that night and back to that big idea, that kingdom ethic, the marching orders for anyone who is a follower of Jesus. So here's a couple examples. I I wanna start with this. He writes this in his letter to the Christians living in Corinth. He says, though I am free... And belong to no one. I have made myself a slave. Strong language, especially in a day and age when there were slaves everywhere. I have made my sla- uh, myself a slave. You, could, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a slave. I have made myself a slave to everyone. To everyone. Why, Paul? to win as many as possible. Paul says, look, I'm on a mission. I don't have much time left. I did a lot of damage to the church early on in my life. So I'm trying to make up for lost time and I'm willing to do anything short of sin to convince the Gentiles that God has done something on their behalf in the world. So he continues and says, to those not having the law, talking about the law of Moses, talking about the Torah, you know, all the, all the, all the, all the, the old kind of Old Testament laws, for those, to those not having the law, that's the Gentiles, I became like one of those, not having the law. In other words, I became a Gentile in order to reach the Gentiles, even though I'm Jewish. That's the, to the extreme to which he was willing to go. But then he qualifies it, and he says, though I am not free from the law of God, to which a Jewish reader would say, wait a minute, you just said that you're not under the law. So you're not going to act like somebody under the law, but you're not out from underneath the law of God. This is confusing. What are you talking about? You're pulled out from underneath the Torah, but somehow you're still under the law of God. And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm still under God's authority. I'm just not under the Torah. And then he tells us what law he is under. And here's our phrase. He says, but I am under the law of Christ. Okay, there it is. So I'm no longer under the law of Moses, but I'm still under God's authority because I'm under the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? You are to love one another as I have loved you. In his letter to the uh, Christians living in, in, in the Roman province of Galatians, Paul says this. This is a little bit more descriptive. This is the verse that we read together at the beginning Carry each other's burdens carry each other's burdens. When you see somebody who's burdened financially, somebody is burdened with with family problems, somebody who's burdened with work, somebody who's burdened with a physical ailment, you know, or or has gotten tripped up in life, you are to carry one another's burdens. And again, this is each other thing. This is an everybody's in thing. This is the body of Christ functioning like the body of Christ, carrying each other's burdens. And if you do, look at this, if you do that, you are fulfilling... And here it is, again, the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? You are to love one another as I have loved you. You are to love one another as I have loved you. So when the concerns of others concern you and you act on it, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. You are doing what Jesus told his disciples to do. And again, the New Testament marching orders for those of us who are Jesus followers. So, Here's the thing, as Jesus followers of all persuasions, regardless of political persuasion, if you're a Jesus follower, the law of Christ, that is our marching orders. And the law of Christ should inform, over time, as we grow, as believers, our conscience. It's called an informed conscience, is what the second part of our template. It should inform that, that our conscience should become hardwired into the law of Christ, That he loves us and I'm going to love other people the way he loves us. So that when we do something that is contrary to loving as Christ loved us, it should bother us. It should ding our conscience, but not just my conscience individually. It It should ding our collective conscience that we should all be, as a group, as a body, we should all be disturbed, irritated, or even convicted by some of the same things. We should all be disturbed, irritated, and convicted when we see injustice. We should all be disturbed, irritated, or convicted when we see human beings disrespected or dishonored. Or maybe even accidentally we don't give them what they they deserve. Or when we see people undermining their own future, undermining their own health, undermining their relationship with their kids, undermining the integrity of maybe their family or the integrity of society. We should be moved by that, and we should be moved to action. It should bother us, and it should dig our conscience. So whenever we see somebody expressing autonomy that undermines their family, that undermines the health of the community, it should bother us. Anytime we or somebody within the bounds of Christianity, whenever we see them violating this law of Christ, it should bother us collectively. Our conscience should kind of go off, and we see that outside of the church. It should bother us as well. And then we have to be measured in our response. But our collective conscious, the thing that just kind of sets us back, that moves us to apology, that moves us to action, that moves us to love people, it's all tied to this idea that you are to love other people, respect other people, and to recognize the dignity of other people the way Christ did for you, the way that Jesus did for you. I did that for you. I left heaven for you. I'm not afraid of guilt by association. (laughs) If Jesus had been concerned about guilt by association, he would have stayed in heaven, right? So as he said, I want you to take your cue about how you treat other people and how you treat each other from me. Because according to Jesus, if you want to set policy, if you want to set things that are good for the people, what's the best for people? This is what's best. It's the law of Christ, to love one another as I have loved you. And that should inform our collective conscience. So let's just give a couple quick examples, because as simple as this is, this is a powerful, powerful, powerful dynamic. Um, And in fact, this dynamic we talked about a little bit last week shaped Western culture. You heard me say that. It's it's, it's absolutely true. Let's take a look. As an example, once upon a time, all over the world, everywhere in the world, every village, every town, every kingdom, it was self-evident. Self-evident just means it was obvious. It was obvious to the people. It was unquestioned. It was just the way things were. It was like, why are we even talking about this? I mean, it's just so obvious. Once upon a time, it was self-evident that some people should be owned by and controlled by other people. The whole idea of slavery people owning other people, was so self-evident. It was was not even considered a moral issue. It wasn't even a point of conversation. It was not even a question. It was just the way of things. In fact, 4th century BC, Aristotle was a Greek philosopher. And as, as you know, philosophers, their responsibility was to help everything just kind of makes sense in the world, right? That was their job. So we're gonna to try to make science make sense with the way people act and the way people behave, and we're gonna to try to make it all work together. So there's, there's this big holistic understanding of how the world works. And so Aristotle, of course, we've heard that name before, big thinker, right? Here's what he wrote. This was, this was his philosophy. He says, for that some should rule and others be ruled as a thing, not only necessary, but expedient. He's talking about slavery. Expedient. Not only is it necessary; it's expedient. I mean, there's just no way that the world would work without some people ruling over and controlling and dominating and owning other people. He says, "From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subject, subject subjection, and others for rule." I mean, the idea of doing away with slavery—it's like that's not even a question. That's like saying the sun's not going to come up. I mean, it was just so obvious them. But here's the thing. After Christianity had taken hold and began to take hold of the Roman Empire, St. Augustine, the fourth century Christian bishop, he said, no, slavery is a result of sin, guys. We need to bring this up in conversation. And suddenly this brand new idea is born from this brilliant and bold mind who spoke out into the world where slavery was just a permanent part of the landscape. I mean, it was everywhere. And suddenly, it begins to dawn on the church as believers as they begin to have misgivings and they begin to see the discrepancy between what the Scripture says about people being made in the image of God and loving others as Christ loved us and the horror of slavery. One more example. One more. Once upon a time, it was self-evident. It was obvious. Nobody questioned it, that infanticide or, or in the Roman world, they called it Exposure. That infanticide was good for society. In other words, it was the right thing to do. And in fact, there were certain community laws and social laws in certain parts of the Roman Empire where you were required to allow your baby to die. And in some cases, it was just because you know, a girl was born and, and they, they didn't have a boy yet. And so it was law. You take, take the baby out. You, you take your baby and you, you place your baby outside the walls of your village or down by the river and then you go home. And legally, you are not culpable for allowing your child to die or killing your child because the fates would decide the fate of your child. So you were innocent. And this was just the way it was. If a man suspected that his wife was pregnant by another man when she had the baby, you took the baby and you exposed the baby. If if the baby had a birth defect, you exposed the baby. If you didn't want another little girl, you exposed the baby. There was really no rules other than you couldn't take the baby's life yourself. This was just the way of things. This is just the way they did it. This was self-evident. This is just so obvious. This is just how the world works. But Christians, from the very beginning, disagreed. Believers, Jesus followers, from the very beginning condemned exposure and condemned infanticide, and they would eventually go out into the edges of the forest where the children were often left and down by the river, and they would bring these children into their small homes with a little bit of food that they had, and they began to raise these children themselves. But why? Because, you know, if you look in the scriptures, neither Old Testament nor the New Testament rewarded it or encouraged it or spoke specifically to that. Scriptures don't require it. So why did they do it? There's no verse that says, here's what you're supposed to do. It's because love required it. Love required it. And as they began to understand what it meant to be made in the image of God, where they began to understand the law of Christ, we are to love others as we have been loved. And think about it. We, we, were, we were like little babies ourselves that were adopted into the kingdom of God. We had no clue what was going on while we were still yet sinners. And Christ gave his life for us. And suddenly... There was this tension around, again, what was just this expected practice all around the Roman Empire. And they began to rescue these babies. And as Christianity began to take hold and began to make inroads into the Roman Empire, and as the empire's conscience began to be affected by the teachings of Jesus through the church, through the unity of the church, in the year 318, after embracing Christianity, Emperor Constantine declares infanticide a crime. Why the change? Because suddenly it becomes a conscience issue. Why did it become a conscience issue? Because of the teaching of Jesus and the unity of the church. The church was one around the teachings of Jesus. In the year 374, Emperor Valentine made exposure or setting your baby outside somewhere to die, a capital offense. You could lose your life if your baby lost their life because of your neglect. That's amazing. But, but when the law of Christ informs an individual or a village or cities or a nation's conscience, things change. And there has been so much change even in our nation because of this very same dynamic because it's so brilliant. Jesus' single New Testament command, this new covenant command was so powerful and it was so ahead of its time and it was so modeled and baked into just the story of the gospel and what the gospel is that it's transcultural and it's transgenerational and it it sits at the The very center of the kingdom of God values and it will never go out of date. It doesn't have a shelf life. We are forever and ever, every generation to do for others what God through Jesus has done for us. And that kind of ethic and that kind of morality is to inform our conscience. That's what I mean by saying informed conscience. And and as we have influence in the world to inform the conscience of people who aren't even in the church and could care less about the church. So this is why church, this is so important. Because part of our responsibility is to be salt and light and being salt and light, we are to shine bright and give flavor to our nation, to our city, to our neighborhood, which has the very real potential and the power to shape the conscience of a nation. It's also why we cannot be divided. We dare not Be divided, especially over political issues, especially over candidates that come and go, political parties and platforms that come and go and they change. And it's so incumbent upon us to figure out how to be one as Jesus prayed that we would be one in spite of our political differences. So that leads us to the third part of our template and that's this, the law of Christ informs our conscience. That's number one, or the law of Christ is number one, Uh, And then that informs our conscience too. And to an informed conscience, we incorporate knowledge and wisdom. Now, let me explain why this is important. One of the great advantages of the human race is that we are able to collect information and pass it on to the next generation, right? We've got some teachers in the house. We know that. We learn. We grow. We become smarter. Science and technology, we we, we know that it advances. And so it, it doesn't matter, though, if you have a generation of dogs they are all equally dogs. None of them came in going, well, my mama taught me this, so you know, let me teach you guys this. No, none of, it doesn't happen that way, they just can't do it. They're just dogs, which is wonderful, but it just doesn't work that way in the animal kingdom. right? But humanity, because of our ability to communicate, to express, to write things down, to catalog, we're, we're, our learnings, we've allowed, we're allowed to pass that on, a generational gift to the next generation with everything that we've learned, which, which gifts the next generation, right, with everything that they've learned. And so consequently, every generation is smarter than, the, hopefully, smarter than the generation before if they'll take that knowledge. So, you know, at the least they've collected the information and the data, and so with that collective knowledge. Hopefully comes extra insight and wisdom. And so as people of the 21st century, as we think about what does it look like to live out this kingdom ethic of loving others and you know as Jesus loved us, we should add that to our informed conscience. The knowledge of science, the knowledge of psychology, and the wisdom that comes with understanding how our world works and understanding how we made. So all of this works together. Another way of thinking about it is this. Think think about it this way. If somebody asks you Where do babies come from? Your answer to that question is determined by the age of the person asking, right? When a four-year-old asks, you don't don't lie to them when they ask the question, but you give them an answer and you accommodate to their capacity, right? When a 15-year-old asks, you know, you first say, well, you should know by now and then you tell them, right? (laughs) And if a 24-year-old is asking this, maybe it's a question, you know, in a, in a deeper learning environment, in a graduate school context. In other words, we don't lie, but we always accommodate to the capacity of the person asking. And this is so fascinating. Your heavenly father, God, accommodates, you can see this in scripture, to the capacity of his people. So when we look at Genesis, we see God accommodating to the capacity of this ancient, 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 kind of pre-science, you know, pre-Tylenol, never took a warm shower group of people. And and the way he talks about you know, uh, the kingdom of God is very, you know, g- general. And right, but when Jesus manifests himself, he says, he starts teaching about the kingdom of God. And he says, here's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come, and I have come as the king's son. And as you look at me, you see the Father, and I've come to dwell with you. And he starts teaching him about all the kingdom things. And he starts laying down some things. And he explains God, but he explains God in a way that the Old Testament didn't quite get explained before because they've learned and they've, they've grown and they've acquired some knowledge. Why? Well, people's capacity had changed over time. So things have changed. And in every generation, the, the hope is that our knowledge increases and our insight increases and God's ability, listen, to help us understand how he made the world, which is beautiful, right? He created it how the world works increases. And so as Christians, and this is kind of a tension point for some, As Christians, we should be on the forefront. We we should, why would we resist science and learning about the beauty of the world that God created? Why would we resist discovery? We should be the most curious people always learning and growing because our faith, listen, is tethered not to an interpretation of a text. Our faith is tethered to an event in history, a person. It's a person, a real person, the resurrection of Jesus So we don't need to fear new. We don't need to fear science. And, and every once in a while, a generation kind of gets in a running gun battle or a spitting match with science. And to me, that's foolish. The, the church, we should incorporate into our, our informed conscience, which is love God and love others, right? The knowledge and the wisdom that comes with this age that's been handed to us by the people that came before. So the knowledge all through the filter of the gospel, yes. The knowledge and the wisdom combined with an informed conscience, that is what we should use. And that's what we should leverage to determine which policies and platforms and legislations we support. So that's the template. So let me go through it one more time. The law of Christ, number one, if you're a Jesus follower, is non-negotiable. And then the informed conscience, the law of Christ informs our conscience. Over time, as you learn more and more and follow Jesus longer, your conscience is gonna be shaped according to the law of Christ. You're gonna become more like him. Then knowledge and wisdom. This is a bit intuitive, okay? This is why when your children get sick, you don't call me. You call the doctor. Once once upon a time when, when children got sick, they called the police first. That was just kind of the norm. That was, this is what they did, you know. But now you don't call the priest anymore. You call the doctor. Not because you don't believe in the healing power of God. But because we have an accumulated knowledge and wisdom in terms of how the human body works. And as Christians, we don't see a conflict between those two things. And I will pray for your child. I will. But you don't many times I don't even get a call for prayer because for the most part, you already know, number two, here's another thing, you already know that you have a direct line to God. So you don't need the priest, you don't need the pastor. So you can call to God and you can ask for healing. But if it's something serious, also you can go to the doctor who has studied and understands how the body works. and off you go. So we naturally and intuitively incorporate knowledge and wisdom into our thinking. Um, so we might be looking at this, uh, in terms of the conversation. Well, there's no new information yet, Sean, but here's the rub. This is what it comes down to. This is, this is where, why there will always be disagreement among believers, uh, on these things. And the reason that we will always disagree here, and this is, this is where we have work to do. Um, this is where I hope that we'll be willing to, to move and be willing to be open-minded. The reason that we will always have work to do here is this. Because where you stand depends upon where you sit. Where you take a stand depends upon where you sit. You've, you may have heard this before. This is called Miles Law. It was named for Rufus Miles, who was part of the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administration. And, and this was his statement. And to, and to just kind of tease it out in our conversation this morning, here's what it means. That our cultural context, that's where we sit, where you live, who you're related to, how much money you have, you know, what you know. Your cultural context, where you sit, determines our perspective in life. Many times it determines your perspective in life. It determines what you see, what you experience, how you see it, and how you interpret it. And this is true for all of us. This is why. This is why, if I can kind of push on us a little bit. This is why most of us don't see any conflict between our faith and our politics. None at all. You are loving this series because you have some friends who need to hear it. <laughs> but no, you're, I'm good. I'm good. It's like, amen, Sean. People need to put their faith first and, and their politics second. And that's why I'm a Republican. Because when I put my faith first, clearly, you know the Republicans are right. Amen. I'm with you 100%. <laughs> or... I've got my faith first, and that's why I'm a Democrat, right? But you know this, your political views weren't shaped in a vacuum. And pausing to recognize this and pausing long enough to incorporate this into your thinking is what it means to be mature. And oh my goodness, do we need a little more maturity in the political discussion in our nation right now. Amen. In fact, pausing to recognize this is the way forward. Pausing to recognize this is how, if we're mature, we are willing to move forward to some common ground. Now, understand, this is not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting that we all get in the middle and we have a kumbaya moment and that we all begin, you know, a new party. That's not what this is about. And we all agree, you know, on everything. Let me say it again. There's always going to be disagreement when it comes to policy and platform and legislation, and that's okay, as long as we are mature enough to not allow it to divide us. And if we're mature enough to not allow it to divide us, we'll be better for the conversation. It's a step toward unity that Jesus prayed for us while being diverse politically. So political views and values, and you know this, political views and values like all your views and values are shaped by a variety of things, most of which we had or have no or little control over. And if we can't acknowledge this and take a a deep breath, we all learn something together and we don't have to change necessarily what we believe, but we begin to understand in terms of why other people act the way they do and believe the way they do and we won't experience division. So here's the thing. Here's some of the things that impact the way you think and believe politically. You know this. It's where we live. It's, it's how we were raised. It's where we were educated. It's if we were educated. It's what we've been told. It's what we've seen. It's what we've experienced and what we've seen others experience. These are, are just some of the factors. And honestly, these are just a few. These are, are the dynamics that shape our political viewpoint. Perhaps the best evidence of this is if you think about your parents' political viewpoints. If I were to say to you, why do you think your dad was a Republican? Why why do you think your mom is just absolutely committed to to, to being a Democrat, why? You would probably have an answer. And, and, And you would relate it, not so much necessarily to their theology, but to the world that they grew up in. And the same is true for you, and the same is true for me. And that doesn't mean that we have dismissed The significance of our faith, not at all. It's that when these two things come together, we have a tendency to use one to prop up the other. We all do. But what if, what if, especially over these next few weeks as we're leading up to the election, we were able to just step back and begin to view it all just a little bit differently? Not even just, not not change what you believe or even necessarily who you vote for, but to just see it a little bit differently, again, because. Where you stand depends upon where you sit. And recognize this, recognizing this allows us to open our hands and open our minds and open our hearts without changing maybe our political viewpoint. But, but, beware, when you start down this road, you may start to change some of what you think and even maybe some of what you believe. That's not the goal. That's just an unintended consequence of an, or an unintended outcome. So putting it all together, here's what it looks like. The law of Christ, an informed conscience, knowledge and wisdom, policy platform, legislation. Now, that's not dynamic. That's just kind of what it is. That's just the template um, that gives us a picture to get us to the the place where we can have the discussion that we had this morning. So I want to spend our closing moments making a suggestion in terms of what we do with this. And this is really quick. It's actually really simple. (laughs) What do we do about this? This is, this is not complicated, it's actually not new, this isn't anything you haven't heard before, but sometimes you just gotta say what everybody knows so that everybody remembers to do it. <laughs> so three things, so simple. Number one, begin to listen. Listen, and specifically listen to people who don't experience the world the way that you do. Listen to people who don't experience the world the way that you do. Not just the haves and the have-nots, but the Christians, the non-Christians, the young and the old, the black and the white, the gay and the straight, the married and the single, the new citizens, the old citizens, people you know, who've been in the military and people who even despise the military. Begin to listen to people who have experienced the world differently than the way you have. Number two. Number one, listen. Number two, once you start listening, I want us to learn something. Okay? Please don't just say, "why well, I listened, but I'm not going to do anything about this. <laughs> don't listen and then learn. Come on. We're, we're believers. Uh, again, our faith is tethered to a person and an event, so we don't need to be afraid of new information. We don't need to be afraid of, of new knowledge. We don't need to be afraid of new opinions. So be curious. Leaders are learners. And, and guess what? Jesus called you to be a disciple, right? An influencer. So learn to learn. <laughs> Sam Harris, he's an atheist, but, but he, he said this statement. And it's, just, it's, just, it's just the truth. I don't know. Can an atheist have an absolute truth? I don't know. <laughs> but this is what he says. He says, Pay attention to the frontiers of your own ignorance. And I love that. It's great advice. Pay attention. Pay attention. I have to say this to myself. Sean, don't turn away. Don't refuse to read that book. Don't don't just turn it off because it disagrees with your worldview. Pay attention to the frontiers of your own ignorance. Be a student, not just a critic. Be a student Don't be a critic without learning a single lesson, pause. And would you become a student and not just a critic? Otherwise, and I'm I'm gonna push just a little bit again. Otherwise, what happens is you're gonna discount every bit of information. You're gonna discount anything that doesn't fit in perfectly into your current flawed worldview. And that's not a good place to be. If you don't listen and you don't learn, if we don't listen to each other and learn from each other, we will discount anything that doesn't fit perfectly within our worldview, which is, flawed. And we quit learning. And when we quit learning, we quit growing. And something bad happens on the inside when you quit growing. You stagnate and you become stale. And you're better than that. You're better than that. And we should be better than that. Let me put it this way. If you're a Democrat, your Republican brothers and sisters aren't crazy. <laughs> they're not. And if you're a Republican, your Democrat brothers and sisters, they're not crazy. They just sit in a different place so they see the world in a different way. And as long as we catch ourselves saying, I don't know how anybody could believe that, you've just confessed something about you that you don't know something. So now you have an opportunity to learn. <laughs> I don't see how anybody could behave that way. Well, there's something that I don't understand. I don't, I don't know why anybody would react that way. Well, there's something that I don't understand. So why wouldn't we, especially within the body of Christ, take the time to understand? Because everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to them, doesn't it? Everybody's response makes perfect sense to them. Everybody's viewpoint, everybody's politics makes perfect sense to them. And when we don't understand, it's because, I know this is mind-blowing, it's because we don't understand. (laughs) When we don't understand, it's because we don't understand. In fact, if you're a Republican, you need to know that there are a lot of Democrats who are really just like you. And if you're a Democrat, you need to know that there are so many Republicans out there who are just like you. They love Jesus. And they're taking a stand based upon where they sit. Last thing, love. Never, please never, 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 ever, ever burn a relational bridge over a political view. You say, well, they started the fire. Okay, well, then they started the fire on their end of the bridge. You don't start a fire on your end, okay? Never burn a relational bridge over a political view because this goes back to to Jesus' commandment. This goes back to the law of Christ. This goes back to the cross. This goes back to the epicenter of everything that we believe as Christ followers. The you beside you is more precious to God than your politically flawed view. A view that you changed possibly 10 years ago. A view that could change five years down the road. So don't burn down a relational bridge over a political view. That you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed view. While you and the person that you're burning the bridge down with were yet sinners, Christ died for both of you. (laughs) How dare I? How dare I burn down a relational bridge with someone for whom Christ died? So come on, let's listen, let's learn, and let's love. Let's stand as we close this morning if you can. Again, like I said last week, I, I... I know that some of us, we can't help but think this to ourselves, you know, Sean, this is so naive. You really think this is gonna make any difference? (laughs) You know, these conversations, just remember this. This is where we kind of landed last week too. Once upon a time, there was a handful of Jesus followers crushed between an empire and the temple. Remember that. And they gave to Caesar what was Caesar's and they gave to God what was God's, their lives. And now the empire is no more and the temple is no more. Rome's most famous emperor is nothing but a footnote in the story of the grand scheme of who this Jesus of Nazareth is. So empires come and go, uh, kingdoms come and go, uh, they rise and fall. But Jesus said, I'm gonna build my ecclesia, my church, my people. I'm gonna build my people, and nothing is gonna ever stop it. And he did. And we're invited to be a part of it, and it's still the way forward, and our responsibility especially in this season like this, is to show our divided nation and our divided world what it looks like and that it's even possible to disagree politically and to love unconditionally while we are praying like Jesus prayed, Lord, make us one. Because at the cross, we lost our right to do anything less than that. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for who you are. God, There is one person that we can all get behind, and that is you. Thank you for loving us unconditionally and showing us how to love others. In your mighty name, we pray.